Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Gospel Record of Mark. The Gospel Record of Mark and chapter number 12. The Gospel Record of Mark and chapter number 12. We're continuing to go with Jesus Christ, walking with Him in the Gospel Record of Mark, and we've reached the Passion Week. The Passion Week is the last week of Jesus Christ, earthly ministry before heading to the cross, and we've watched Him day by day as He is interacting and working. And as we watched on the Sunday of this timeline, we saw Jesus Christ make His triumphant entry. We saw on the Monday that Jesus Christ had uh, cleanse the temple. And then as we reach the Tuesday, we can see that Jesus Christ is working with his disciples, encouraging with a matter of prayer. But immediately afterwards, he's dealing with the scribes and the Pharisees, those that hate Jesus, those that are questioning Jesus Christ. And we continue with that as he's still working uh, with the Pharisees. He talked this morning about giving them a uh, a parable about the wicked husbandmen, and they understood that they were speaking against him. Well, once again, they come to Jesus again. This time, they're armed with questions, hoping to trip Jesus up by their so-called logic. And we can see these things listed out in the gospel record of Mark in chapter number 12. The gospel record of Mark, chapter number 12. And notice with me, if you don't mind, starting at verse number 13. The gospel record of Mark, chapter 12. And notice with me in verse number 13. And they send unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. And when they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that thou art true and carest for no man. For thou regardest not the person of men, but teachest the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Shall we give or shall we not give? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Bring me a penny that I may see it. And they brought it. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? And they said unto him, Caesar. Jesus answering said unto them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Then come unto him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection. And they asked him, saying, Master, Moses wrote to, unto us, If a man's brother die... And leave his wife behind him, and leave no children, that his brother should take up his wife, and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were seven brethren, and the first took a wife, 
and dying left no seed. And a second took her and died. Neither left he any seed and the third likewise. And the seven had her and left no seed. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, when they shall rise, whose wife shall she be of them? For the seven had her to wife. And Jesus answering and said unto them, Do ye not therefore do ye not therefore err, because you know not the scriptures, neither the power of God? For when they shall rise from the dead, they shall neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. And as touching the dead that they rise, have ye not read in the book of Moses how In the bush God spake unto them, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Ye therefore do (coughs) greatly err. And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, that thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said unto him, Well, master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God, and there is none other but he. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself is more than all the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And no man after that durst ask him any question. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that we find in the gospel record of Mark, chapter number 12? The gospel record of Mark, chapter number 12. And notice what Jesus says concerning the question of the Pharisees in verse number 15. Why tempt ye me? We understand that with all three of these questions was meant to do that same thing, to tempt the Lord Jesus Christ, to put him on trial, to trip him up. But Jesus' answer to this is, why tempt ye me? If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for you being a wonderful God. And as we come up to you, we're just asking that you would open up the Bible in a special way tonight. That you would reveal yourself and whom you are and our response to you. As we examine these questions, let us learn more about yourself as you answer each of these three questions that come up. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you that you're an all-knowing God, a perfect God, a wonderful God, and that we could trust you, that we could depend upon you. And because I can trust you, once again, I ask that you fill me with your precious spirit and that you direct my thoughts, my path, my tongue, everything that is done so you can get your own work accomplished through your precious word. 
Thank you for being a wonderful God. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Earlier on, Jesus Christ had warned his disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of the Sadducees, and the leaven of the Herodotans. And if you remember that each of these leavens uh, were representative of their faults, of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodotans. Remember that leaven is a yeast. So if you're going to take bread and you want it to rise, you have to add another ingredient, which is yeast, which causes it to rise. In the Bible, leaven is usually considered an impurity and it is something that shows corruption. And so when Jesus Christ is warning the disciples, he is telling them, be careful of the leaven, the corruption of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodotans. What was the leaven of each of these? The leaven of the Herodotans was hypocrisy. The Pharisees imagined themselves as the most righteous religious rulers. And whereas they may, look good, they may look good on the outside, and they may look good in their outward acts, in the inside they were rotten inside, and they were far from God. And they were hypocrites. The word hypocrite carries the idea of acting. They were playing a part. They were pretending to be something that they were not. And Jesus said, be careful of those um, uh, Pharisees. They're hypocrites. They pretend to be righteous, but they are not. Jesus also warned his disciples, be careful of the legend of the Sadducees. The leaven of the Sadducees is disbelief. They Sadducees did not believe lots about the Bible. We'll cover that here in a bit. But their problem is disbelief. They just didn't believe the Bible. And when you don't believe the Bible, you don't have a basis of any type of authority. You don't have any basis of faith and practice within your life. And then you had the leaven of the Herodotans. The Herodotans believe that you can bring about spiritual results through worldly means. Meaning that if we vote the right people to office, it's going to bring revival. It will not. They have the idea that they can legislate morality. That if we support the right political party, if we support the right causes, then what's going to happen is that there's going to be a social change that's going to fix the hearts of man. And Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the rodents. Be careful of them. They are worldliness. Trying to get across spiritual results through worldly means. Now, Jesus had given them this warning before, but now we could see all three of them line up to bat with the idea that they want to trip Jesus up. Now, remember, they've already denied Jesus. They've already realized Jesus is preaching against them. They've already decided they're not going to obey Jesus Christ. So now they're trying to make him look bad. They're already plotting behind the scenes to get rid of Jesus, to put him to death. But they, before he, they do that, they want him to look bad in public. So each of these questions are designed to get rid of the followers of Jesus, to make him look bad. If you thought political smear ads was just something of modern error, here's an example of them trying to make him look bad in public. However, 
It's not going to turn the way that they think. The very first thing we want to see here is the question of the Pharisee. The question of the Pharisee. Now the Pharisee is joined with the Herodotans. Here are two different political views. One of them thinks that you have to support Herod. You have to support the Roman government. And you had the Pharisees that said, we're God's people, we answer to no one. And they hated Jesus so much, they joined forces to ask Jesus a question. Notice with me in verse 13. And they, that's the Pharisees, sent unto him Jesus, certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodotans, notice this, to catch him in his words. They're hoping they could ask him a question where he's going to stutter. He's going to mess up. He's going to say the wrong thing. So here they set up the question. Verse number 14. And when they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that thou art true. They do not, but they're buttering him up. They figure that they could go ahead and lead him on by, these, by the introduction. Master, we know that thou art true, and thou carest for no man. Now, again, he's leading up. What they're saying is that we know that you don't care what anybody thinks. So what they're doing is they're trying to get him so he's not answering the political correct answer. They're trying to get him to the idea that, hey, you don't care what anybody thinks, so tell us what you really think about this issue. We know that you don't care, that you carest for no man, for thou regardest not the person of men. You don't care who they are. You don't care who you're talking to. You're going to say the truth. So here's the question. He says, is it lawful? To give tribute to Caesar or not. Now here is the background of the question. The Hebrew nation. The nation of Israel. Had won its independence. From the Greek uh, rulers. Back in about. Uh, 150 BC. Uh, that's just rough estimate. Someone probably correct me on that later. But they had won their independence. They were an independent state. But somewhere along the line. Uh, someone who was not even a Hebrew person, an Edomite from the country of Edom, Old Testament Edom, had made an agreement with the Roman government and said, hey, guess what? I'll sell you this nation. If you give me a certain amount of money and prestige, then I'll say that all of Israel is part of a Roman province. How about that deal? And so here is a non-Hebrew person who entered an agreement with the Roman Empire to sell out the Jewish people. So they were not conquered. They did not willingly join. But somehow all these Roman troops are now occupying. And so to the Hebrew mind. They were a free nation under occupation of a foreign government. And that's what the Hebrew people had always seen. This is why every year. Uh, during the Passover time when all the Hebrew people were in Jerusalem. There was so many uprisings and riots. They actually had a political party called the Zealots. Who would assassinate anyone working with the Roman government. And would assassinate Roman officials. For a Roman governor to come to this area. It was almost a death sentence to their political career. Because they had a hard time keeping all these Jewish people in line. Meanwhile, you have the Herodotans who believe that you needed to work with the uh, 
political system. You have to grease the wheels. You have to support it. If we're going to get our independence, if we're going to get our things, then we have to work with a Roman government. Then you had the Pharisees who were the example of we're God's people and we answer to no one. So you have these two people that have joined together and they have the question, Jesus, should we support Rome or not? Should we pay taxes to the Roman government? Now their idea is that they think Jesus is going to incite a riot. Because if they say, we support Rome, then he's not a true Jewish patriot. And therefore, all of the Jewish, true Jewish people are going to rebel against him. But, if he says, I support Israel, then he's a traitor to the Roman government. And they could turn him in. And so they said, we got him now. Either way he answers, he's going to alienate himself. Either way he answers, he has to pick one or the other. Does he pick Jew, uh, Hebrew people or does he pick Rome? Go ahead, give us the answer, and the people are going to rebel against you. Your supporters are going to fall away. No one's going to hang around with you. Go ahead, what are you going to answer? They thought they had him. But they didn't. Notice what Jesus answers to him in verse 15. Now, they're continuing the question, Shall we give or shall we not give? That is the question. Should we support Rome? Should we not support Rome? What is it? But he, knowing their hypocrisy. What is their hypocrisy, by the way? That the Pharisees and the Herodotans are working together. He knows that they're working together, trying to trip him up. They came up with this question together. And he says, why tempt ye me? He knew exactly what they're doing. But then what he, what he asked, he says, give me a penny that I may see it. Now, a penny was a day's wage, but it was also a coin. And he said, give me, someone give me a coin. And he says, all right, let me ask you a question. And they brought it, and he saith unto them, whose image and superscription? So they said, all right, whose face is this on the coin? And they would say, Caesar. Caesar was a title uh, it would be considered emperor. It's the same as pharaoh or king. And they said, it's Caesar. The current emperor of Rome, that's his face on it. So Jesus answering, verse 17, answering and said unto them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and the things that are God that are God's. And they marveled at him. Isn't that amazing? That question is so apt today. Because today people try to phrase things that you're either for this or you're against this. You're with this party or you're with this party. You're with this issue or you're with this issue. And they ask the question expecting you to pick a side. And Jesus said, I'm not picking a side. <laughs> he says, you obey the things that are Roman. You honor that. The things that are God's, you honor God's. You don't have to be one or the other. You could be right and do both. You could support both. You could have an understanding of both sides of the issue and not to the exclusion of the other. Imagine that. They try to trick him. And he says, I'm not going for that. There are times 
when he's talking to the Hebrew people, there are times that you're supposed to honor, respect, pay your dues, pay your taxes to the Roman government. And there are times that you honor the Lord with your substance. You can do both. Just because you pay taxes to Rome doesn't mean that you hate God. And just because you support the things of God doesn't mean you're necessarily rebelling and fighting against Rome. And they said, we don't know what to say about that. It says that they marveled at him. They figured they had him. They got him in a corner. And when, they, when he answered, they go, wow. Well, there goes that. They weren't convinced, but there was nothing they could say to that answer. Okay, and they walked away. Which brings us to the next set of questions. We start with the question of the Pharisees. Then we come to the question of the Sadducees. The question of the Sadducees. Now the Sadducees were political rivals, religious rivals with the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees, they took God's law and the Bible and they wrote a commentary on it. Then they wrote a commentary on the commentaries. And then they had their interpretation of those commentaries to the commentaries. And they had a big system that was all complicated. Well the Sadducees said, listen, we make things simple, we just believe in the Ten Commandments. We just believe in the laws of Moses. Anything else above and beyond that, we reject that. And they went so far as to say that they also rejected the supernatural. They rejected angels. They rejected life after death. They rejected the resurrection. But yet they asked him a question about the resurrection. What this is, is the normal teenager rebellion. When you could tell that when a teenager's not supporting you, they always come up with a what if question. But what happens when this unlikely scenario that will never occur happens? What do you do then? And the reason why they're asking that is not because they really want an answer. They're looking for a reason to disobey. They're looking for some type of justification of why they don't have to obey a rule or a thought, a philosophy or whatnot. They come up with this big what if question. And this is a very abstract, far-fetched what if question that they didn't even believe. But they asked it anyways, hoping to trip Jesus up. So here's the question. They say, uh, verse 18... And then came unto him the Sadducees, which say there's no resurrection. By the way, that's why they're so sad, you see. Because they don't believe in the supernatural. They don't believe in the resurrection. They're missing out on so much that God wants them to have. And when you miss out on so much, you're going to be sad, you see. Which say there is no resurrection. And they asked him, saying... now. The Bible prefaces and says, I want to let you know before they ask the question, they don't even believe this question. Well, that kind of makes it hard to defend. But here they go to ask the question. Master, Moses wrote unto us that if a man's brother die and leave his wife behind and leave no children, his brother shall take up the wife and raise up a seed to another. All right, so here's the scenario, and I'm going to surmise it for you. According to the law of Moses, the laws of inheritance was a big deal. That God believed in personal property. So much so that he even set up a law of redemption every 50 years that things would reset to make sure the people never lost their inheritance that God had provided for them. And so part of that 
uh, desire for God, for people to have personal property, was for the idea here that if um, a man and a wife get married and they don't have children to inherit it, then Moses, uh, the law of Moses had provided another way. That if um, a man died and he didn't produce a male heir, his brother was then obligated to produce an heir with that wife and the son that would come out from that union would carry the original uh, partner's um, inheritance with it. Now, again, this was something that was set up. So they set up a scenario. Well, what if a man marries a wife and he dies without producing a seed, an inheritance, any type of children? And so his brother takes him and to fulfill that duty and he dies without producing an heir. And then brother number three comes up. He tries to fulfill it. He dies. Number four, number five, number six, number seven. And after that, no heirs. Then finally the wife dies. Well, that sounds complicated already. What kind of world is that going to happen in? I, someone probably put a stop to something before that happens. And I was watching a lot of ladies go, yeah, that, no, <laughs> we're done. <laughs> All right. But so here's the what if. Now, again, they don't believe any of it. They're trying to trick Jesus. So here's the question after setting up the scenario. Verse number 23. In the resurrection, which they did not believe, in the resurrection therefore, thereof, when they shall rise Whose wife shall she be of them? For the seven had her to wife. So the question is, after each one of them married her, no one produced a child, all seven married her. When they get to heaven, how are they going to work out living arrangements? Who's she going to be married to? I mean, this is a big complicated thing, Jesus. How's that going to work out? Well, that does sound like a complicated situation. Who's she going to be married to? How's that going to work? Notice what Jesus said to them. And Jesus answering said unto them, Do ye not therefore err, because you know not the Scriptures, neither the power of God. He starts off by saying, you know, your problem is that you don't even know what the Bible says. Your question does not match any scenario or what the Bible says concerning the idea of resurrection. Now, because they didn't believe in the resurrection... They didn't know much about what the Bible said about the resurrection. Notice in verse 25. For when they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given to marriage, but are as angels which are in heaven. What he's talking about during the millennial kingdom, when we get our brand new redeemed bodies, we will not be able to procreate. We will not be able to produce children. Just like the angels did you know that the angels cannot have children? That's very clearly taught throughout the scriptures. The angels cannot produce children. And so therefore, if you cannot produce children, then there's no need to marry. What is the purpose of marriage? Procreation. The reason why God has designed a man and a woman together forever is for the purpose of producing children. 
And if you are in a place where you cannot produce children, there is no need to marry. And Jesus is saying, the reason why you, the first mistake you made is that you don't know what you're talking about because the Bible's already covered this. When we get resurrected in our brand new bodies, you are not going to marry. But notice verse 26 as he continued with this. He said, and as touching the dead, so since you brought up resurrection, let's talk about that. And as touching the dead, that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, how in the bush God spake unto him? Now let's pause here. They did not believe in the resurrection, so Jesus said, hey, since we're talking about the resurrection, and since you only say you believe in the book of Moses... Well, let's go to the book of Exodus. Exodus in chapter 3, he says. And he says, you remember in Exodus chapter 3 how, the bu- in, um, how in the bush God spake unto him, Moses, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and I am the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Jacob. He says, you remember when God spoke to him and said, what is your name? And God said, I am. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Israel. I am the God of Jacob. I am the God of Isaac. Remember when he said that? He says, he was talking to Moses. Now, if we're going to throw out dates, uh, (coughs) we know that Abraham lived approximately, I'm just shooting dates out now, about 1800 B.C. All right? 1800 B.C. Moses met with God in the burning bush approximately about 1450. I just throw out a round number. Well, that's uh, quite a distance between that time there. But when God is speaking to um, Moses, is Abraham still alive on the earth? No, he's dead. He's buried. You could go to his grave. You could go to Isaac's grave. You could go to (coughs) Jacob's grave. They are dead and buried when he's speaking to Moses. However, when he's speaking to Moses, when God said, I am, that is in the present tense. He says, I am currently, present tense, still the God of Abraham. He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham. I am present tense, currently, That means that Abraham is alive somewhere at that time. He may be dead, or his body may be dead, but his spirit is somewhere. And God says, I am currently, present tense, the God of Abraham. I am currently, present tense, as we're speaking, the God of Isaac. I am currently, present tense, the God of Jacob. Well, that's some big still. Notice in verse 27. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Ye therefore do greatly err. He says, let me tell you something about the resurrection. Let me tell you something about life after death. There's no such thing as soul sleep that you die and then thousands of years later that you'll come alive again. The moment that you pass away, you are in eternity. You are with God somewhere forever. In a wonderful place called heaven or an awful place called hell. The moment that you die. D.L. Moody said, one day you'll see in the newspapers that D.L. Moody is dead. He said, don't you believe it? Because the moment that happens, I'll be more alive than I've ever been. 
God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. Absent from the body is present with the Lord. He says you have got a problem because you just don't know what the Bible says. And your faith is there. The basis of their unbelief was the rejection of the Bible. And may I tell you that whenever someone gets in the place where they're disobeying or disbelieving their Bible, their faith weakens. You know the Bible says that. Romans 10, 17. For faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Well, if you do the opposite and you disobey the word of God, it's going to backtrack to, diso- to getting rid of your faith. You either believe the Bible or you don't. You trust the Bible or you don't. No wonder the Sadducees were so sad, you see. Their faith was disrupted because they didn't believe the Bible. And if you don't believe the Bible, what can you trust? But Jesus proves that there is a resurrection by the use of I am and proving that was the present tense when he was speaking to Moses. Well, the Sadducees kind of say, whoops, well, we're out. We're done. So the Pharisees came and they took a swing and they missed. They struck out. Here comes the Sadducees. They swing and they miss and they struck out. But there's one more who's ready with a question. And we can see the question of the scribe. The question of the scribe. Verse 28, And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, and perceived that he had answered them well, asked of him, Which is the first commandment of all? Now the scribes were the people who were entrusted with copying the scriptures. They worked with the scriptures all the time. They actually had rules for the scriptures. Uh, For example, if they were to copy the word of God, when they were done, they actually had to count how many letters were in there. How many A's, how many B's, how many E's. And if they were missing a letter, the whole thing was condemned. If you made three mistakes in a manuscript, the thing had to be destroyed and it can never be used. Well, that's pretty accurate, isn't it? They go through and they have all kinds of rules. And I've got a list of those rules if you'd like. But they are specific rules. They had things that you could not do anything by memory. But you had to write, look, write, look, write. You could do nothing by memory. You had to make sure that you copied it correctly. There was rules of spacing and how big the spaces were. How many spaces could be between letters. How many spaces between words. They had all of those rules and they were set up for the purpose that they made sure that they copied the Bible exactly word by word, letter by letter, the way that it was intended to be. Well, that gives a lot about preservation. And that's what a scribe was to do. So here is someone who works with the Bible. His full-time job is to copy the scriptures by hand. And so he comes up with a question. And he has a question concerning the law. Now, we know that there are ten commandments that we commonly refer to. But in the Hebrew law... Including the Ten Commandments, there are 613 laws. Well, that's quite a bit. And that's complicated because the Pharisees had taken those 613 laws and wrote commentaries, and then wrote commentaries on those commentaries. Then they had biggest debates about which laws most important. And so they would break up into camps. Well, I believe that the 
the dietary laws, that's the most important. If you want to show yourself truly righteous, you've got to keep the dietary laws. Then you had those that said, listen here, it's the law of the Sabbath. If you really want to prove that you're on God's side, you obey the Sabbath. And there had Sabbath rules. You actually had to count how many steps you took on a Sabbath. Because if you took one more over, then you broke the Sabbath and everything's ruined. You're going to die. They had all kinds of things that made it complicated. Rules upon rules. And then they would argue, which one's the greatest rule? Out of the 613 laws, Jesus, which one do you say is the best? And again, this is set up for an idea that if he says one above all the rest of them, then what's going to happen is that there's going to be a riot. He's going to lose a fan base. He's going to lose support. People are going to go against him. They're going to rise up. He's not a real Hebrew because he doesn't support my side. Well, I can't support him because he doesn't believe in this. And they're trying to set him up. But notice what Jesus answers. Verse number 29. And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Now, what he's doing is he's dividing out the Ten Commandments into two parts. The first four commandments of the Ten Commandments deal with our relationship with God. And the last six deals with our relationship with man. And what Jesus does is he summarizes all of the Ten Commandments into two summary statements. He says the first four commandments can be boiled down to this statement. Hear, O Israel. By the way, this is Deuteronomy 6, 4. He's quoting. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. And with all thy soul. And with all thy mind. And with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. Then he follows up and says, The second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other greater commandment than these. That's amazing. Notice what the Pharisees, or the scribes saw about this, verse 32, or 32, yeah. He says, And the scribe said unto him, Well, master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God, and there is another, none other than he. And to love him with all thy heart and with all thy understanding, with all thy soul and with all thy strength is to love and to love thy neighbor as thyself is more than all the burnt offering and the sacrifices. Now notice what he said. He said, man, that's better than any sacrifice, any work, any obligation, anything here. He says, you, <laughs> that's right. Now think about this. What is the greatest commandment of all. Now, pay attention. This may revolutionize your life. What is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. If that is the greatest commandment, to love the Lord thy God with everything you have. Now think about that. This isn't just a love God. He says love God with all 
thy heart. Do you love God with all of your heart? Or do you just say, well, I love him, but I also got room enough for this. Do you love him with all of your heart? Does everything about you love God in your heart? When we're dealing with a heart here, we're dealing with your emotions. Do you love God with everything you have? Or do you hold some back? Do you love thy God with all thy soul? Remember that within thy soul, it's carrying the idea that we have will, intellect, and emotion. The heart is dealing with the emotion part. But think about this. Do you love him with all of your mind, your intellect, and your decision making? This is big. Do you love him with all thy mind? With what you think about? And with all your strength. That means your physical activity. Does everything that you do come out of your worship of God? Does everything you do come out of your love of God? Does the way that you speak to people come from your love of God? Does how you work come from your love of God? Does the manner which you work come from your love of God? That's pretty big. That's really big. Now think about this. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with everything you have. May I ask you a question? If the greatest commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all of that, what is the greatest sin you could commit? And that's not to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. If that's the greatest commandment, then the greatest sin is to break the greatest commandment and not to love the Lord thy God with everything that you have. That's pretty big. That is pretty big. By the way, as a little disclaimer, next to the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, when you read the Ten Commandments, what they should do is show you how much you fail. And in big box car bold letters, you need to write the words, I need Jesus. Because none of us <laughs> fit that. Every single one of us fail that greatest commandment. In fact, the only way we can love God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy heart, with all thy mind, with all thy strength is by Jesus Christ because we cannot do it. Now, if the greatest commandment is to love the Lord thy God, the second greatest commandment is to love thy neighbor as thyself. So may I ask you a follow-up question? What is the second biggest sin we could commit? 
not to love the Lord thy God is the greatest commandment, the greatest sin. But the second biggest violation is not to love thy neighbor as thyself. That's pretty big. That is pretty big. You could sum up all the Ten Commandments in those two statements. And yet, if you were to boil down all of the 613 laws, boil them down to 10, we would say, I can't keep the 613. You boil them down to 10, I can't keep the 10. If you were to take the 10 and boil them down to 2, we would have to look at the 2 and say, I can't keep the 2. I need Jesus. I need Jesus. But those are the greatest commandments. You know, (laughs) if you just took those two rules and applied them to your life, it would change everything. If everything you did was motivated by your love for God and your love for others, it would change how you live. It would change how you speak to people. It would change how you do things. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, scrubbing the toilet. Can't believe you scrubbed the toilet. Hate the scrubbed toilet. Or you could say, everything I'm due with everything, my strength, my mind, praise the Lord, God's given me a toilet and then I could use it. And praise the Lord for what God's doing. God is still good and God is still right. And you could sing praises to God while you're scrubbing the toilet. Everything we do should come out of our worship and our love for God. What I do in my life is not because I want to get something from God. It should be because of what He's already done for me. And He's a loving God. But that's the question that He asked. What's the greatest commandment? After this, the the scribe said, I can't answer. That's the greatest answer. There's only one God. He says, that's amazing. Verse 34, and Jesus saw that he, that scribe, answered discreetly or correctly. And he said unto him, thou art not far from the kingdom of God. He says, you're pretty close. When you understand this, you're pretty close. But notice this, and no man after that durst ask him any, more, any question. The Pharisees are done at this point. The Sadducees are done at this point. They go back to their secret meetings to plan on how to kill Jesus. <clears throat> and we're going to see more of that. By the way, this is still just Tuesday. All of the things that we've hit in the last three sermons has happened in one day, the Tuesday. <coughs> Excuse me. If you're looking for a real actual date that matches our calendar, Tuesday, March 28th of AD 30. And yet, Jesus is still working with them. We're going to come back and see on Wednesday night more of Jesus' interactions on this Tuesday, preparing for the Passion Week. But as we come to tonight, we know that the Pharisees had asked a question dealing with the idea of who do we honor, this side or that side? And we saw that Jesus is not on either side. There's times that we obey this and we're not wrong or by supporting this and supporting this. We could see that the Sadducees took a question. And their question was based off of a false premise. And they didn't even believe the Bible in the first place. But where we're at tonight is this last question. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart?
with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. If you were to be honest, you would say, I, would, I fall short of that. If you were to be honest, you would look at yourself and say, I don't live up to that. I'm sure if that if you reviewed your day today, there were things that you did that was not out of worship of God. You may have even interacted with a person not by the worship of God that you wouldn't have spoken to someone the way that you did if Jesus was in your mind and in your heart at the moment. You understand? We could spend the rest of our life working for this and we'd be better off because of it. To make this your goal. To make it this, what is the goal of your life? My goal is to love the Lord thy God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength. That is my goal, is to have Jesus as my all in all. To have Jesus as my whole purpose of being. To have Jesus as the center of my life, as the every part of my life. That is what my goal is. To love Jesus with everything I have. And remember, love always produces action. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to back it up by action. I want to live my life in such a way that when I tell Jesus I love you, he looks down and says, I know you do. There should be no doubt in our Savior's mind that we love him because of what we do. Now, if we be honest, we fall short of that. But it should be the goal that we don't. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.